Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. I, hope, I, I trust that your morning has been blessed. Uh, Lord, if, I mean, if not, I will pray that the Lord would, would bless your morning, the rest of your morning, and even the rest of your day. I want you to know that I am incredibly thankful to be a part of this church body. Incredibly thankful for this church body. I want you to know how thankful I am for this body. Uh, you enabled me to enjoy uh, a long holiday weekend away with my family last weekend. And as most of you know, I traveled. We traveled, my family and I, to visit uh, Andrew, our son, at Camp Lejeune. We had a, a nice time with lots of driving and, and visiting. Uh, we also visited my wife's father, who lives in North Carolina as well. We were able to go to uh, go to a lake uh, that he, he lake house that he owns, and we were able to spend lots of time. I was uh, able to even sneak in times of writing, studying, and spending time with our Lord in that beautiful setting. So thank you for permitting us to have that time away. Today we're starting a seven-week break from our study in Ephesians. We're diving into a four-week study on, on the kingdom of God. And then I'm going to be taking a three-week summer break in August. As we head into the fall semester, we'll have Josh Stevens come uh, on, I think, the 8th of August. On the 15th, we'll have Greg Jones come. They, both of those men have come before. They're great um, expositors of the Word, uh, very good at what they do. And so you'll be blessed, I'm sure. And we also have our very own Phil Chang, who's going to preach on August 22nd. So you can look forward to that and be 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 praying for him as he prepares for that time. I think he's going to be preaching, in, unless this changes, he's going to be preaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think verses 1 through 10, is that correct? 1 through 12, okay, good. So, now you may be asking, as we take this break, summer's, summer's a grace, we take this break, you may be asking why we would take the time to study a subject like the kingdom of God. Well, I hope that I'll answer that question over the next four weeks, but for now... I would submit to you that an understanding of the kingdom of God, along with its implications, is the key to unlocking the answer to many questions in the Christian life. A genuine grasp of God's kingdom program will guide you in knowing how our Lord wants us to live in this fallen world. It will also prepare you, or better prepare you, for, facing, for what we are facing in the future, both our immediate future and further down the road. You see, I'm, I fear that many Christians don't have a good comprehension of the kingdom. Therefore, they live the Christian life as actors on a stage blindly following the script. Let me, say what, let, me, let me give you another way to look at that. They follow the law, the law of the kingdom, as though it were a list of do's and don'ts designed to sap all the fun out of life. Many fully reject it, thinking that happiness can be found in other pursuits. Speaking of his lifelong study of the kingdom of God, Michael Bloch states this. He says, the kingdom of God is not just an in interesting academic pursuit for me. It is intensely personal and practical. It is the basis of my hope and the solution to everything wrong in the world. Every frustration, every fear, every doubt can be answered by the kingdom of God, end quote. I don't think that Dr. Bloch... I don't think that his declaration is an overstatement. As a matter of fact, I fully agree with him, and I hope that you will as well by the time we get to the end of this study. I pray that our study will open a whole new world for you and begin to answer many questions. 
As, I, as we begin, I want to give credit to some men who have shaped my thinking over the past several years considering are on the, the kingdom of God. I especially want to mention Dr. Block, who I just quoted. He was one of my theology professors in seminary, and I have, I have leaned hard on him in my studies. I also want to mention Dr. Chow and Dr. Harris, Greg Harris, and Matt Waymeyer, who I have spent a lot of time studying these men, and I will continue to do so. I think I have about 900 pages of reading to do in the next four weeks, but that's okay. Just pray for me. It's okay. Each of these men have contributed significantly to my understanding of the kingdom. But having said that, I want you to know that we could really spend the rest of the summer and probably into the fall with this glorious subject, but I've promised to pack everything I can into this four-week study. I'm hoping that we need to coordinate this, but I'm also hoping that we can have a Q&A after the final study so that you can answer any questions. If so, I hope that you'll attend and have your questions at the ready. Now, one last thing before I pray. I don't want this to be dry lectures. I don't want this to be a dry, just a dry time that you can hear what the Bible has to say about the kingdom. I'm praying that these sermons will have true gospel impact on you as an individual, on this church, and on our community. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning. I pray, we pray that you would bless this time. Bless this time of preaching today, and bless this study, Lord, as we attempt to tame, if you will, this large subject that can be out of hand in some ways if we let it, but we want to, to spend time and really think through and be even efficient in what we do this morning and, and for the next three weeks. We praise your holy name and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let me read to you out of Isaiah verses, or chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, this is verse 15, Isaiah fifty-two fifteen. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. As I was writing this sermon, Tropical Storm Elsa was speeding her way through the state. As you know, we experienced some winds and some downed trees with heavy rains and flooding, and some even faced power outages in the storm's aftermath. The storm, as you are aware, was pretty small compared to the megastorms that we've seen over the decades. Many of you remember Hurricane Andrew, which hit South Florida back in the 80s. Who can forget the images of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which caused severe flooding in New Orleans in 2005? Well, the Apostle Paul captures these pictures of destruction in Romans 8. He says that God's creation currently groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. God reminds us that we are living in a, a fallen creation every time we witness a natural disaster like hurricanes or earthquakes. 
even man-made disasters, such as the collapsed condominium in South Florida. Even those remind us that we live in what? We live in a fallen world. It's a fallen world. Fallen a world where there's sickness and death and destruction. That's not the way God intended it to be. In the wake of these tragedies, people always ask one question. If God is sovereign, why does He allow so much destruction? Why does He allow so much suffering? Why does He allow death? And to shorten that up, why does He allow evil? What is the purpose of evil? The fact is that man's rebellion against God's sovereign rule has caused these things. God warned Adam that his disobedience would bring suffering and death, yet Adam rebelled despite God's dire warning. I fully realize that that many folks will not find this a satisfactory answer. They will say, couldn't he have done it differently? Couldn't he have done it without all this suffering and death? truth is, is that the existence of evil allows his holy angels and his saints to fully see and experience the perfections of God, including his goodness. See, we wouldn't understand what good is outside of the presence of an understanding of evil. In other words, how do we know that God is genuinely good if there is no evil? In the aftermath of Adam's disobedience, God cursed the ground because of Adam's rebellion. And from that point forward, life on earth was profoundly different than the Garden of Eden. But amid the turmoil, God offered a glimmer of hope that will fully shine forth throughout all of eternity. He promised that He would send the seed of the woman to restore man to the the glorious state that he was in the garden, and really beyond, far beyond the garden. This promised Redeemer would restore man's relationship with His Creator, This man, this this Redeemer, would crush the head of the serpent and restore God's fallen creation. I want to submit to you, (coughs) the rest of Scripture anticipates this glorious hope. The rest of Scripture lays out this glorious hope and how it's going to happen. But in the meantime, creation groans awaiting this restoration. And as Christians, we're called to preach the coming restoration and, and, its, and its implications. We're called to preach the coming kingdom. Just a few days ago, the Southern Baptist Convention, I guess it's been a couple of weeks ago now, Southern Baptist Convention elected a president, Ed Litton, for the coming year. Just after the convention, it was revealed that their newly elected leader had been guilty of preaching at least one sermon prepared by another preacher. Now, I could focus on the obvious moral breakdown and completely preaching another man's sermon, especially without giving any credit, but for now, I want to draw your attention to something related which I believe is of greater significance. In a recent blog post, James White pointed out that Tim Keller made the following statement. He says that heterosexuality does not get you to heaven. So how in the world could homosexuality send you to hell? Now, White... White makes the point that, that former SBC President J.D. Greer and the newly elected Ed Litton have recently parroted. parroted. Litton was even more to the point. He says this. Now listen very careful, carefully. Homosexuality does not send people to hell. How do I know that? Because heterosexuality doesn't send people to heaven. Now besides being one of the more logically flawed statements I've ever heard, it is profoundly false. The Apostle Paul, Paul, Paul says that the un, unrighteous will not, I repeat, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And it's, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of them will, in fact, inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, in other words if you practice evil, if you make it your practice to practice evil, if you continue to walk in evil, you will not, underline not, capital letter, not be in the kingdom of God. But then Paul gives an astounding, the, the astounding reality of the gospel in verse 11. He says this. This is, this is what you need to understand. He says, such were some of you. Idolaters? Yes. Adulterers? Yes. Practicing homosexuality? Yes. Check, 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 check. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see, these men are working to deny the clear teaching that we need to be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of God. In order to enter the kingdom of God. And this coming from men who claim to be preachers of the gospel. So, let me put that together. You see, we live in a fallen world that only vaguely resembles the one in which John describes in Revelation 21 and 22. So, how do we know that breaking God's moral law is sinful and will send you to hell? As we'll see, we know this because these things are hostile to God's kingdom law. They're hostile to God's kingdom law. James calls the, king, calls the kingdom law the royal law in James chapter 2. This law can be summarized by the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James says the same thing in James chapter 2. As Christians in this current age, in the age that we live in, prior to Christ's second coming, we are called to live according to God's kingdom now. And we're called to proclaim its imminent arrival. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, what the world is doing today is hostile to what God proclaims. It's hostile to what we just saw, that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, well, let me say this first. You see, Jesus preached the same message during his earthly ministry. He said this in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is at hand. In other words, Jesus called them to turn from their wicked and worldly sins because the kingdom of heaven was near. Now later in Matthew 17, as Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and the cross, he ascended a high mountain briefly to, to reveal his glory to his disciples. Just prior to that revelation, Peter had declared that Jesus was the anointed one, the Son of the living God. In other words, he was the one who would ascend to the throne of God. Now, just after this declaration, Peter or Jesus told the, the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It, now, it would be an understatement, a, a major understatement to say they didn't understand this. You see, they thought that Jesus had come to set up the kingdom at that point. Peter even rebuked him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You see, at that moment, he didn't com comprehend God's full kingdom plan. 
He didn't realize that Jesus' suffering and death at the cross, along with his burial and resurrection, had, had to come before the glory of the kingdom. He also didn't comprehend the mystery of the church as part of God's eternal purposes, because God hadn't revealed that yet. In Matthew 16, he said, he just told him, he revealed that he was going to build his church, but it hadn't been fully, uh, fully revealed yet. We know that from Ephesians. But they did recognize the significance of the kingdom of God. And they did recognize Israel's role in it. You see, the drama of the cross and the grave cannot possibly be overstated, nor, nor can we exaggerate the glory of the resurrection. Yet as Significant as those events are, I believe Jesus' ascension to reign from the eternal throne of God may be just as important. Briefly turn to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we find Jesus in the hours before his ascension. He had gathered his apostles and commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Brethren, I believe that the disciples' question here proves that God's kingdom plan is the unifying theme of the whole Bible from Old Testament to the New Testament. And I want to prove that to you today. I hope to show you that an understanding of God's kingdom plan unlocks a fuller understanding of Scripture. You see, they, they understood, the disciples understood the significance of the kingdom as well as the role of Israel among the nations. Now, here I want to point this out, that Jesus' answer to them, the answer to this question, does not indicate that their understanding of the kingdom was wrong. And look at verse 7. In verse 7 he says, It is not for you to know the times or, or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You see, his answer, his answer to the disciples revealed the Father's intention for the kingdom. It also reveals the work of the church. Our, our job as the church is to bear witness to this coming kingdom, after, after we had been empowered, after the, the disciples had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were told to take that message, the message of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, they were told to take that from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now, as I mentioned, I believe God's kingdom plan is the unifying theme of Scripture. As we start, I need to give, I, I should give, especially in light of the, the plagiarism controversy, I need to give full credit to Michael Block and, and to the, the other men for their work on the kingdom of God. As I said, he was one of my theology professors at TMS. Now, in his book called He Will Reign Forever, Block argues this. He says, the kingdom of God is the grand central theme that encompasses all other biblical themes. Now, there are good men on both sides of this, and there are good men that would say that the kingdom of God is not the, the, the main theme of the Bible. But I actually, I think I, I, mean, I do agree, uh, based on his arguments, I agree. And what I want to do is take you through a jet tour of the Bible to prove this to you. Now, before we do that, I need to define a couple things, a few things. The Bible actually speaks of two different types of kingdoms which are related. 
The first type of kingdom, so I want to I make sure we put this in your mind. The first kingdom that's talked about is God's universal kingdom. God's universal kingdom. This, this kingdom can be seen in, one, in Psalm 103, verse 19, where it says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. So, as you can see, God's universal kingdom extends over all things. It, there's no exceptions. There's no limit to God's power and authority. David speaks of God's universal kingdom in Psalm 145, 12, and 13. He says that your godly ones shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Then he says this in verse 13. He says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So no matter what's happening here on earth, no matter what's happening in the demonic realm, God's kingdom has never ended. It has never been limited. It is, he has always been sovereign and always will be sovereign. So therefore, God's universal kingdom can be defined as His eternal rule, His eternal rule, His eternal rule over the whole of His creation. Now, we need to understand the critical nature of that concept. Again, there's never been any exception to God's eternal rule. And there never will be. It's unchanging. He, he has always and will always rule in this way. He cannot, be, he cannot be thwarted. A good example of that is in Daniel 4.35, where Nebuchadnezzar, where God removed Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty for a period of seven years. See, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest man that lived at the time, right? He was, he was a king of, of, of Babylon. And after that time, he stated this. He says, all inhabits, inhabitants of the earth... After he was after the seven years, he says, all the inhabitants of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. So God is high and lifted up. And no matter what happens on this earth, nothing has changed his rule. Even Nebuchadnezzar saw that. Now, it's important to note that according to this verse, Daniel 435, God's universal universal reign extends over all his creation, including Gentile kingdoms. And the words of Alva McLean, it is not for men to choose whether or not they will be under the rule of the universal kingdom. Whether they like it or not, they are already under it. End quote. So this leads us to the second type of kingdom we see in Scripture. This is called God's mediatorial kingdom. God's mediatorial kingdom. Now we've already seen in Acts 1-6 where the disciples asked Jesus Jesus if the kingdom was being restored to Israel. In In that particular verse, they're referring to God's mediatorial kingdom. And that's important because God's eternal kingdom, God's universal rule has never changed. But there's the mediatorial kingdom that is that they're asking about whether or not that is going to be restored to to uh, Israel. Now, I think the clearest example of this, this type of, of, of kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom, is in Genesis 1, 26-28. You see, those verses give the account of man's creation. You see, man was created in the image of God for the purpose of ruling over the earth. That's God's me- mediatorial kingdom. In other words, God has chosen to rule the earth through man as his representative. So he's, he created man in, the Im, in his image and his likeness in order to rule the earth. 
Now, putting this together, God sovereignly rules over all His creation from His eternal throne without exception. He has given the authority to man to rule the earth, but that does not change the fact of His eternal rule. The fact that Satan has the the leash that he has today doesn't change the fact that God eternally rules and He is over all, including Satan. That's the reason why, you know, people talk about Satan and act like he has some sort of power. Well, he does in a sense, but... Ultimately, it has no power other than what God gives him. So we don't have to worry about Satan, ultimately, because what? Because God is in control. Now, I need to give you one other important definition or clarification which will help us as we progress through this series. <clears throat> the series. Bible, the Bible teaches that we will dwell forever with God in a new heaven and new earth. Now, as a new believer, I thought that heaven would be some eternal worship service. And admittedly, I struggled with that. I struggled with it. I find great joy in worshiping God. Don't get me wrong. I I find great joy in singing and, and worshiping. But I wrestled with the idea of this unending worship service. Some may picture heaven as purely a spiritual existence with no physical or material characteristics. Maybe you, you, I mean, this is the, the classic, right? Maybe you picture it as sitting on a cloud playing a harp for the rest of eternity. Uh, Dr. Block actually talks about, there's a, there's a Farsight, I think it's a Farsight cartoon, where, the, where the, uh, he's sitting, this guy's sitting on the, on the cloud playing a harp, and he says, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. <laughs> but I digress. As it turns out, the Bible doesn't teach this type of existence. It affirms, the Bible affirms the spiritual and physical aspects of existence in the eschaton, in, in, in the new heavens and new earth. In the words of Russell Moore, Russell D. Moore, not the Russell Moore from the, formerly of the SBC, he says, uh, he says this, The picture then is not of an eschatological flight from creation, but the restoration and redemption of creation with all that entails. Table fellowship, community, culture, economics, agriculture, and animal husbandry, art, architecture, worship, in short, life, and that abundantly. You see, if you look at Revelation 21, 1-9, you'll see an accurate picture of a transformed existence which will have continuity with our current state. The new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven to earth, and as such, heaven and earth will meet, will meet transforming and renewing the earth. God will dwell with and among His people in this new heaven and new earth. In Revelation 21, 10-27, John describes the holy city as a real place with material properties. According to 21, 17, it will even have human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. In 21, 18-21, you can read this later if you'd like, it describes building materials, including a street of pure and transparent gold, unlike anything that we've ever seen. Uh, Revelation 22.2 affirms that the nations will be present there. And at the same time, there will be unending worship. There will be unending worship. But see, we're called to that same type of worship today, are we not? Paul describes this worship in Romans 12.1, that we're living our lives as a living sacrifice. We're, we're, we're to live, that's our, that's our service of worship. We're to, we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. We do so now and perfectly, in the new, but in the new heavens and the new earth, we will worship Him perfectly with everything that we do. Now, with these things as our backdrop, 
I want to take you through a quick trip. I hope to do it quickly through the Bible to better understand God's kingdom pro- program. We're going to follow what Dr. Vlock calls the kingdom trail. Again, I've leaned heavily on him. I want to make sure I give him full credit. The kingdom trail through Scripture. There are five stops on this kingdom trail. Let's go to the first stop. The, the creation mandate ratified. God created man to rule. And if, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, you'll, you'll see uh, the, the account of the creation of man. If you've been in this ministry very long, you know that I believe everything begins with Genesis. This makes sense because Genesis is the book of beginnings. And in this case, Genesis 1 begins to give us an understanding of God's kingdom and, and God's purpose for the kingdom. We need to understand that every kingdom then has a ruler, a realm, and a, an authority or rulership. Genesis 1 clearly establishes God's universal rule. We've already seen that. God is the undisputed ruler over all His creation. He exercises authority over His creation in that He spoke, spoke everything into existence by His Word. He also sustains His creation by the Word of His power. Therefore, Therefore, God's universal kingdom, as we have seen, has a ruler, God Himself, a realm, all things, and a rulership. God exercises authority over all things. Now, in this chapter, in chapter 1, he also, God also establishes God's, or man's mediatorial reign. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. Let them rule. Then he goes on to say what the rule is going to be. Ultimately, everything on earth. Everything on earth. Here we see the ultimate ruler giving man authority to rule. He establishes the realm of man's rule, which is the earth. It's the earth. So man has been made ruler of the earth as man's kingdom. Notice that he's to rule over the fish, the birds, the cattle, and the creeping things. See, God expects man to rule over and manage his creation. Now in verse 27, God affirms that God, that, or Moses affirms that God creates man as male and female, which establishes the proper created order. Now look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." So He wants them to multiply, be more, become more than they are, and fill the earth. And what? If you look at your, if you look at your Bible, it says, "Subdue it, subdue it, and rule." You see, in this verse, God requires man to not only fill the earth, but also to subdue the earth. And the idea there is that there's a garden, and he wants, to, wants man to bring the order and make the garden spread out over the entire earth. Man has been charged to bring order to the chaos of this world, which follows the creative order then that he brought order to, that God brought order to chaos as he spoke the, or order to, to the chaos as he spoke the world into existence. Now, subduing the earth will be a crucial concept as we look forward to the unfolding of God's kingdom plan in the future. Now, turn quick, real quick, to, uh, very quickly to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Now, there's a ton there, but ultimately God expected man to work in the Garden of Eden. He also required that man rule in a righteous way. Now, since the fall... Man has ruled the earth, has he not? But he has not ruled righteously. He has not ruled according to God's holy plan. So when we think of a king and a kingdom, so if I tell you that we're all kings, 
then if you have the idea of a worldly king, we, we generally think of bad kings because of our sinful existence, but that's not the type of, of kingdom that God intends for man. He, he, he intends man to rule righteously. Now I want you to notice very quickly that Eden is a real place. Uh, I believe this is the reason that Moses describes the garden as having rivers and gold and precious stones. This, is, this was a land that's not, uncom- not completely unlike the, world, the earth that we see today, albeit it was a perfect place. But it's not unlike, there's continuity again. There's a, this should remind us of what we saw in Revelation 21, or what I mentioned in Revelation 21. There, there's continuity then from beginning to end. That's important. It's a critical concept. Lastly, I want you to notice that God gave Adam direction. He told Adam that he could freely eat from any tree of the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's at this point that the story starts to go awry. Let's take the second stop. Let's stop at, go to the second stop on the kingdom trail. The creation mandate ruined. The creation mandate ruined. Man fails to obey God. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, there's a lot here, but I just want you to see that man failed to keep God's mandate to rule. The serpent entered the entered the garden, and deceived Eve. And sadly, Adam stood by and let it happen. We see that he was actually with her in chapter 3, verse 6. Not only that, but he participated by taking the fruit from Eve to eat it. In other words, Adam clearly failed God's kingdom mandate to cultivate and keep the garden, and not to eat from from the forbidden tree. Yet, as I said earlier, yet as I said earlier, God gave a glimmer of hope in the darkness by promising a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise, again, can be seen in 3.15. It's this promise that sets the stage for the Messiah as the perfect man to fulfill God's kingdom mandate. Again, that's a critical concept. It's the continuity that we're talking about, but this perfect man will come and fulfill this mandate. This leads us to the third stop on the kingdom trail. God's creation mandate reiterated. So God told man to rule over his creation. He gave him that before before the fall. Now turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now, you may realize that these two verses speak of God's eternal rule, His eternal kingdom. Look at, look at verse 3. When I can... Let's look at the fourth stop. Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
The sufferings of the Christ were prophesied by the prophets. Isaiah's suffering servant, which we saw in Isaiah 52 and 53, is one of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah's suffering. Turn there quickly if you'd like. We don't have time to hit everything. As you turn to Isaiah 52, we don't have time to hit everything, but look at Isaiah 52, verses 6 and 7. Now, I believe this scripture, Isaiah 52 and 53, looks forward to a future day when Israel is restored to the promised land. Verse 6, 52, 52 verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I'm the one who is speaking. Here I am. I think this is set after the, what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It is during that time that Israel will be delivered from exile. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, How lovely on the mountains are, are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Look at verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now I would argue that God will deliver Israel in the sight of all the nations for the, for the sake of his name. He'll do, that, he'll do that so that all the nations of the earth will be able to see it. Now look at 52.13. Look at 52.13. So... We know that the servant is going to suffer. It's speaking of the cross. It's clear. It's clear he's speaking of the cross. But he then says in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That servant is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And at that time... He will be greatly exalted over the nations, having conquered his enemies. In Isaiah 252, 15, it says that this suffering servant will, in fact, sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. But for what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Isaiah 53, if you're familiar with it, goes on to describe his suffering. And Isaiah 52, 13-15 clearly indicates that the suffering Messiah would one day be elevated to the status of a mighty king. And all the kings of the earth will be astonished. All the kings of the earth will look upon him and go, the one who suffered, the one who died on the cross, he is now the king. In Acts 3, 18-21, Peter makes that con the connection from, the, from that suffering ser servant to the one who would reign. You can turn there if you'd like. And as you do, I want you to know that, that Peter in Acts 3 is actually addressing the Jews at the temple. Look at 3.18, if you're there. 3.18, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So, it, the prophet said that this serv servant, that this Messiah, that this Redeemer would suffer. He would be bruised on the heel if you'd use Genesis 3.15. See, Peter is speaking of prophecies such as what we just read in Isaiah 52 and 53. 
Okay, look at verse 19. Acts 3, verse 19. Peter says, Therefore repent and return. Who's he talking to? Jews. So that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I would argue that these times of refreshing are a future time when Christ will be with his people. Now, I would argue that those people, his people, will include Israel. That's what he's saying in Acts 3. He's saying, repent and return, which I think ultimately they will do according to Isaiah 52 and 53, because they will see, they will look upon him whom they they pierced. Look at verse 20. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Who is he appointed for? The Jews. So who's speaking to? Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Again, Peter again is speaking to the Jews. In 321, I believe, I believe that Peter is referring to Christ's exaltation to the right hand of the Father. He is awaiting the time when he will return to judge the world and restore all things. Notice notice the the restoration spoken here is a period of time. It's a period of time. It's important. We need to understand that. So so God will send Jesus, the Christ, to to earth in order to, to subdue it, which the first Adam failed to do, right? Listen to Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. Speaking of the Christ, speaking of this Jesus. And he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Because he came the first time as the the suffering servant. He didn't come to set up the kingdom. But he will come back and he will have all things subjected to him. Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Jesus' perfect life, his sin-atoning death on the cross, and his death-defeating resurrection, these have qualified him to be raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father at, on God's eternal throne in the heavenlies. In Romans 1, Paul says that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. As such, Jesus, Jesus, he is uniquely qualified to rule in righteousness. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Matter of fact, he has succeeded. Where Adam and every other man after him have failed. Let's look at the fifth and final stop on this kingdom trail. Creation, mandate, refined. We should end our time today by briefly looking at the kingdom in, in Revelation. 
In that book, we'll continue to see the continuity. Again, I want to point out the continuity of God's kingdom program. I would say that the story ends where we started and beyond. So there's, there's continuity from beginning to end. The, the first Adam failed to subdue the earth, but the second Adam will not fail in doing so. Let me give you a brief layout of Revelation. We'll see more of this, I think, in the fourth sermon in this series. But in Revelation, John is given a vision of the glorified Messiah and of the last things. If you look at Revelation 1.19, John gives the outline of the book. In 119, if you're there, he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen. This is, this is John's vision of Christ in chapter 1. Then he says this, And the things which are. I would, I would submit to you, this is John's letters, or, or Christ's letters, that is, to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says this, And the things which will take place after these things. Now, I think this is John's vision of the coming day of the Lord, which is called the Great Tribulation Period. Now, chapters 4 through 18 in Revelation describe this period of judgment where God will return his people back to the promised land from exile among the nations. What we have to understand is, is that Israel has always, from the time of the first exile to, to now, they have never come out of exile. They've always been under Gentile rule, have they not? Even in the times of Christ, they were under Roman rule. Now, in some ways, this parallels Exodus under Moses and the conquest of the land under Joshua. In that period, the period to come, this great tribulation, Christ will open the sealed judgments and will bring terror throughout the earth. He will quite literally pour out his wrath on the earth. And amid that tribulation, he'll save 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. It's very clear. It's very clear. And all these things then will lead to Revelation 19, where Jesus will return to the earth in judgment. Now, you can turn there briefly. I know I'm pouring out a lot at you, so please stick with me. Revelation 19, 11 through 14 describes the scene as Jesus appears to make war with what? With the kings of the earth and the nations. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the, the Almighty. And his robe, on his robe, and on his thigh, he has the name written, guess what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel, verse 17, standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on, the, on, on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. And look, at that, look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him. The kings of the earth, again. He's making war on the kings of the earth and their armies that are, are assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
Church, the Apostle John has testified that these things are true. At his first coming, our Lord came to suffer and die on the cross. He came to seek and save the lost. He came as a lowly servant. He came to redeem his people from their trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2.6, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a, of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's your king. Went to a cross to die, to suffer. That's his first coming. But at his second coming, <laughs> at his second coming, Jesus will come as the conquering king. He will judge the nations with a rod of iron. If you are a believer here today, I can promise you by the words of John, you will reign with him. And the rebellious will be judged. The kingdom of God is coming whether you are ready for it or not. Never forget Paul's words in Philippians 2.9. So he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then it says in 2.9, For this reason also, God highly exalted him. That's, that's kingly language, isn't it? And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. That's ruling language, is it not? Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue, every tongue, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. According to that scripture, every knee will bow to him. Some will bow, and I pray this is true of you. Some will bow in true worship to him. Others will be forced to acknowledge his lordship in judgment. This is the most important question you will ever answer. Will you bow the knee now? Will you bow the knee now, acknowledging your need for him? Will you follow Christ today? Don't wait. Don't wait. He truly could come at any moment. He has tarried for 2,000 years. But don't let that fact give you any solace. He is, in fact, standing at the door. Besides that, your life may be required of you at any time. Following Christ will cost you everything in this life. It'll cost you everything. close with Jesus' words in John 12, 25. Contemplate the kingdom. <clears throat> Contemplate the fact that you will reign with him throughout eternity. 
John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. And there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. Beloved, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As we sit here today, it's not, it's not outwardly obvious that he's reigning on high. But it will be obvious when he comes again, when he comes again as described in Revelation. Are you ready? Are you ready? The kingdom of God is at hand. I hope that we'll be blessed by this time as we continue this series over the next few weeks. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning. It's early afternoon. Lord, you, you're sovereign over all these things. Sovereign over power outages. You're sovereign over computer glitches. Sovereign over this time. Father, I pray that you would get the glory as we consider what you will be doing, what you are doing in our world. As we consider the, this coming kingdom, as we represent it today to the lost and dying. Father, may, may this understanding that you are coming, that the Lord Jesus will come in judgment, may this understanding spur us on to live lives that are glorifying to you, to preach the gospel to those who don't know you. May we do so with an urgency, knowing that your kingdom is at hand. Praise your holy name. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, as it is a morning of calling audibles, we're going to change our last song.